Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, bringing you the African perspective. Broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa, I am your host, Brett Wilkinson. First, the news. Good morning, I'm Jolani Toulon. Civil society groups in the DRC have threatened to protest over a decision by the country's electoral commission to postpone the presidential elections in three cities which are opposition strongholds. The commission claims the postponement is due to concerns over the current Ebola outbreak as well as insecurity. The new president is due to be sworn in by the middle of January after elections this Sunday. The BBC's Gaius Kouwene reports residents of Benin Butembo who expressed surprise and frustration. Benin and its surrounding area, along with the towns of Butembo and Yumbi, are home to about 1.2 million registered voters. No new date in March has been announced for the polling in those areas, but the delay would appear to exclude those voters from the presidential election. In its statement Wednesday, the Electoral Commission said it will announce the final definitive results of presidential race on January 15th, with the inauguration of the new president slated for January 18th. Meanwhile, some DRC nationals living in Cape Town and South Africa's Western Cape Province have expressed unhappiness that the provincial elections have been postponed. This DRC man is a small business entrepreneur in Cape Town. They have to do it because it's not about Ebola they're talking about. It's about election. We need the new president in Congo. But Kabila is a good president, but the problem, the time of to, to stop is over already. You have to stop and then to give other people to take chances also. But we need election in Congo because we need a, a new president in Congo for everything to take place in good uh, position. Gabon's President Ali Bongo is expected to deliver a speech on New Year's Day. It will be the leader's first public address since he had a stroke in October. The 59-year-old leader has been back, has not been back to Gabon since he fell ill in Saudi Arabia on October 24th and will address his nation for Morocco's capital Rabat where he is recovering. A lack of official news on the leader's health after he first fell ill sparked speculation that he was incapacitated or even dead. It was only revealed earlier this month that he had suffered a stroke. Three opposition party leaders have called for an independent medical team to see Bongo and Rabat to assess whether he can perform his presidential duties. Indonesia has rerouted all flights around the erupting Anak Krakatau volcano between Java and Sumatra Islands as it spewed columns of ash into air. This comes days after it triggered a deadly tsunami. A crater collapse on the volcanic island at a high tide on Saturday sent waves up to five meters high, smashing into the coast of Sunda Strait, killing more than 400 people. The government air traffic control agency, ANAV, says the country is on red alert, the second highest level. And finally, British Foreign Minister Jeremy, Secretary rather, Jeremy Hunt, has commissioned a report into what can be done to help more than 200 million persecuted Christians around the world. The BBC's Martin Bashir has a story. Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt acknowledges a global increase in the persecution of Christians. According to the government, 250 were killed every month last year because of their faith. The review, to be led by the Bishop of Truro, will make recommendations on practical steps the government can take to better support persecuted Christians around the world. 
for Channel Africa, I'm Chalani Tulo. Coming up in this program, Kenya faces rising cases of forced disappearances. 2018 was supposed to be a special year for the DRC, and Malawi and Mozambique agreed to a power interconnect deal. Rising cases of forceful disappearance of people in Mombasa on the Kenyan coast, allegedly by security forces, have raised the concern of human rights groups who staged a peaceful demonstration in the city recently. They demanded the security agencies explain the whereabouts of people who have gone missing. More from Diana Wanyoni in Mombasa. Human rights group led by Haki Africa marched in the busy streets in Kenya's second capital city, Mombasa, with the placards over their heads chanting in Swahili, Where are our people? They were heading to the central police station. According to Haki Africa, more than 100 people, most of them youths below the age of 35, have disappeared under unknown circumstances in the coastal region within a period of five years. Sada Suleiman is one of the people that took part in the march. Her husband disappeared four years ago while he was in a mosque. She says her efforts to get help from police has remained vogue. My husband was taken by unknown people in February in 2014. Till today we don't know where he is. We went to the court and the court ordered that police should investigate this matter. Police are the one who took him. How will they investigate this matter? What we want is the law to be followed so that we can live peacefully. Holding his son's picture in his right hand, Mbarak Bakari remembers vividly how his 18 years old son was forcefully taken by unknown people in broad daylight this May in Mombasa. The picture is the only memory he has of his son. My son disappeared on 25th at 2 p.m. until today he has not been seen. We have followed it up to the government and security agencies and they say that they will follow it up and give us a feedback, but we have not had anything to date. We feel pain over our children. If he has shown interest in something bad, they should bring evidence and be presented to court to be prosecuted. One hour later, demonstrators arrived at the central police station where they engaged in a brief argument with police representatives who insisted that they hand over the statement without reading it to the public. But the activists insisted to read it before handling it over. Where is it? Yeah, let me finish. International Day in support of victims of disappearance. It is being marked to the whole world. So we are here today together with the families to mark this day and to appeal to you to do more in terms of looking for those who have disappeared. That is the message that has got us here today. A statement which we want to read so that we give to you at most a few minutes then we are off. He told me to, to get receive it. On Very good. To mm. address you later. It is good I follow what I was told. Mm. That I take it on behalf of the board. You will take it you after we've read it. We are requesting you. This is what Haki Africa's statement entails, as read by one of the participants. At the cost with 
which includes Mombasa, Lamu, Kilifi, Taita Taveta, Tana River, Kwale. It is estimated that in the last five years over 100 people have been forcibly disappeared and this number is rising each and every day while people keep disappearing. The authority are failing to find the lost ones and in certain cases, even when evidence is uh, presented, including uh, vehicle numbers plates, little is done by the police to follow up on the leads. This has caused great concern to the families and Kenyans in general. One of the demands by human rights organizations is for the government to put up a judicial inquiry to investigate enforced disappearances. Immediate end of this heinous uh, and constitutional and repugnant act of enforced uh, disappearance in Kenya. And lastly, update from the police to each family about the effort made so far to find all those that have been falsely disappeared. We will announce when we will walk from coast to Nairobi to present our grievances to the President, Chief Justice and Speaker of the National Assembly. We urge all Kenyans to join us in seeking justice. Comrades, Comrades, That is the voice of one of the demonstrators reading the statement from human rights organization Haki Africa before it was handed over to the police at the central police station in Mombasa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. The year 2018 has been a crucial one for people of the Democratic Republic of Congo, since they have been expecting for a long time elections for them to choose new leaders. Among the leaders to be chosen is the new president who has to replace outgoing president Joseph Kabila, who is beyond the two terms allowed by the country's constitution. Jean-Noël Bamwizi reflects on the issue. 2018 is indeed the year people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo have been waiting for as it was a crucial year due to three elections including the presidential, the national and provincial parliamentary polls. The competition was opening the field on November 23rd when the Independent National Electoral Commission launched the electoral campaign. The Electoral Commission, the President Konenanga, insisted on the respect of both the Code of Conduct and the country law. Konenanga. Don't put your placards everywhere. Remain under the law. It's important for your placards and boards to be where they will be seen, but respect the local authority. Make use of courtesy in your media statements or in meetings. 21 candidates competing for the country's high position, meaning for president, while more than 15,000 for the 500 seats in this country's National Assembly. The UN mission here has called on a peaceful campaign and respect of everybody's election-related rights. Monisco spokesperson Florence Marshall emphasizes the electoral campaign remains an opportunity for everybody to express his voice. It's important that everyone, all voice, can be expressed during the campaign and that uh, the respect of demonstration and uh, the respect of the right of expression be fully enforced throughout the uh, territory of the DRC because it's very important that every single Congolese citizen be able to have access to the programs of all uh, candidates in order to be able to choose the candidate who best represent their views and opinions on 
election day uh, schedule on, on 23rd of December. In terms of security during the electoral campaign, Monusco spokesperson Florence Marshall told the Channel Africa this is not really part of the mandate since it falls under the country's responsibility. As you know, Monusco does not have the mandate regarding the security of the electoral process. This is something that falls under the responsibility of the Congress government. But, uh, of course, if Congress authority approached Monusco with specific requests, we will assess them and we will do our best within our capabilities to respond to them. The electoral campaign was launched while the electoral stakeholders didn't reach any consensus on different serious matters opposing them, including the voting machines and voters missing fingerprints. A meeting between the candidates for president and the independent National Electoral Commission on the matters fizzled out and indeed no significant solution was found according to the only lady candidate for president Marie-José Ifoko. I don't know how shall we go and vote in December since we didn't have any agreement on the voting machine in which nobody trusts. It's really regrettable since we are not moving but we are at risk of being in the game of Seni. On the field, the ruling coalition, well known as the Common Front for the Congo, was present here and there, campaigning for the coalition's joint candidate, Emmanuel Ramazani Shadari. Shadari is indeed the man chosen and supported by the outgoing President Joseph Kabila to be this country's next president. On the other side, the opposition has done its best to try and get also a joint candidate to face the common front for the Congo's Ramazani Shadari. The seven main opposition leaders met in Geneva and chose the businessman Martin Fayulu to carry their joint candidacy less than 48 hours after two of them, namely Felix Echiseke and Vital Kameri decided to withdraw from that Lamuka coalition. They then created their own coalition and appointed Felix Etisekedi, joint candidate, and Vital Kameri, his director of electoral campaign, bringing a divided opposition to face a united, organized, and disciplined ruling coalition. Felix Etisekedi then called on opponents to not miss the target as the ruling coalition must remain the only target for the opposition to win the election. We are not opposed to opponents. Our target is people on power that we have been fighting since years just to obtain peaceful and democratic alternation. The only target remains the ruling coalition candidate. There is no time to lose fighting our friends of Lamuka. But according to the supporter of the Lamuka coalition, Rigobert Muliwo, campaigning for Martin Fayulu, the only people's candidate remains Martin Fayulu. The people's candidate today is Martin Fayulu Madidi. He has even been nicknamed the people's soldier. He is one of the actors who defend the opposition dynamic. He's one of the major actors of the opposition dynamic. Martin Fayulu is the people's candidate today. The atmosphere reflected the reality of electoral campaign here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and that's normal. This analyst from the University of Bukavu told Channel Africa that's what makes the campaign to look nice. Joseph Kaleba. But I think this is normal. Otherwise, it can't be an election. An election is a competition. Why people are campaigning? People are campaigning to try to convince the other people that this is not uh, eligible, I am eligible. And I think this is the beauty of the election. 
from the time people think that things will not work, and to the great surprise, on the 23rd of December there is election, we have new leaders, I think it can be good, it's just like a football match, it's normal. And as far as the voting machine is concerned, the opposition has remained divided the whole of the campaign. Felix Echisekedi said the machine is not really an obstacle for people to go and vote. But during the campaign, Martin Fayulu continued to call on people of the Democratic Republic of Congo to reject the voting machine since it's an legal tool the Electoral Commission has introduced to cheat for Ramazani Shadari. I then asked another candidate for president, Seth Kikuni, if to reach an agreement on the use or not of the voting machine was really a big problem. It's a problem because it's dividing. It's very important for all parties to agree on certain principles. I think it's a problem that we can solve. But we just need to focus on the solution instead of focusing on problems. And according to this senior executive of the outgoing President Joseph Kabila's PPRD, the People's Party for Reconstruction and Democracy, opponents didn't have enough ideas to campaign. But in reality, they were afraid since the electoral campaign surprised them while they never get prepared for the elections. Claude Mashala. They must stop uh, trying to put some trouble in uh, a people's mind. Let me tell you something. Most of our opposition in Congo, those guys are afraid of those elections. Most of them, they know they can't win. Most of those parties haven't even uh, means. This is not uh, the machine. The fact that those people, those guys, are afraid, they know that uh, those elections could make an end to the political future. That is the point. That was indeed the way the electoral campaign for December elections looked like in 2018 here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyan Zovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1,000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1,000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9am with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time 1000 African Voices with me Awurengwi C on Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective Malawi and Mozambican authorities met in South Africa recently to agree to terms and conditions of the power interconnector deal. 
This was like a follow-up meeting amid continued power blackouts in Malawi. The deal was part of the SADC Power Pool project, where countries have to share power through interconnection. George Mahongo sent us this report from Blantyre. News of the meeting in 2018 between the two nations, that's Malawi and Mozambique, dominated the public domain. What looked like an aborted project seemed to be gaining ground. The project meant that Malawi would be able to tap power from Kahorabasa in Mozambique, but of course at a certain cost. The project was put on hold by the government of then former president, the late Bingo Mtarika, on grounds that it was going to be expensive for Malawi. That aside, the U.S. government, through its Millennium Challenge account, MCA, also facilitated the rehabilitation of hydropower plants and installation of new transformers at a cost of $350 million. Malawians looked at this as a welcome move so as to deal with power blackouts. They said it was naive to be subjected to power blackouts. Such blackouts are said to be a thorn in the business and public sectors. This is the gospel that we have been hearing for quite a long time after the installation or commissioning of a new transformer. Every time we are told electricity will improve, but most of the times what turns out is totally different. And taking the experience that we have had before, I don't think I should have any expectation that things will improve. I don't think so. We will have no blackouts as frequent as they were before and I'm very sure that would, would come to a stop if we are very, very careful with the equipment. If the equipment is taken care of, we keep the equipment in good shape because if we don't, we don't keep the equipment in good shape, then we will still be talking of blackouts in our country. This blackout thing which is happening in Malawi it's just like uh, a mess to the country because uh, we are failing to cope up. Even if uh, we are failing even to buy food, to buy uh, uh, meat, because everywhere you don't find even bread, you don't have even bread in the locations, whatever, failing to iron the clothes. If electricity is blocked out from uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, they come at 12 o'clock in the, at the night. So you cannot do anything during the night like that. So we are really hard on that you are a married person, as uh, you have told me. What happens mainly when you want to, you know, have fun and then maybe, you know, buy some food stuff in view of these issues of blackouts? We are even failing to buy some of the things which we, our children enjoy at home. They cannot even watch the cartoon. They cannot even do anything. They are even crying, failing to enjoy themselves. And we are even failing to access maybe to the... Meat we used to do because we don't have in our local bushes because of electricity. In this case, how do you survive? Survival now is becoming hard because it means that you, you, shall, you just go to buy the available things which are not even worth it to. But I'm just appealing to the government that at least they should have pumped no more money to the electricity supply commission of Malawi so that they can upgrade their machines because the machine which they are using now it's the same machines we are using in 1970, 1980. So the demand is high, but their supply is low now. That's a problem. It is not helping us. Even if you go to work, the same thing. You find the blackouts. You cannot even do anything. Wherever you go, you find it's a blackout, blackout, blackout. This came a few months after Malawi authorities raised electricity tariffs by 32%. Malawians, especially energy users, brace for tough times. Prices of goods and services 
went up, so too transport fares, inflation also went up. The cost of living was also unbearable because most people still depended on less than a dollar per day. The interconnector power project between Malawi and Mozambique was said to be part of a project which the Sadiq bloc is championing so that countries share power day in, day out. George Mohango, China Africa, Plantaya. The Burundi National Communication Council, CNC, suspended the voice of America, VOA, and the British Broadcasting Corporation BBC World Service for six months since May 2018. The country's communication regulator accused the two international radio stations of failing to respect the bill regulating the media and professional skills. Two other local radio stations and Radio France International on their side were warned for a possible legal decision if they continued to infringe the regulations guiding the media profession. This report from Bernard Mankokira in Bujumbura. The Voice of America, VOA, and the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, were banned to broadcast on the Burundi territory for a period of six months since May 7, 2018. Kalinga Ramadan, who was the chairperson of Burundi National Communication Council, CNC, at that time, accused the two radio stations of falling short of laws governing the press and breaching professional ethics. The BBC was accused of disregarding balance of information and verification of sources and broadcasting content likely to put the national cohesion and reconciliation at stake. Here is Kaling Ramadan. As far as the BBC is concerned, the CNC has sanctioned for not having taken into consideration the warning that we sent to the BBC on the 16th of March 2018, asking the British organization to take into serious account the balance of information and the verification of sources as far as the information matters of concern of Burundi are at stake. In spite of that remark that we sent to the BBC, which was relating to the content that was broadcast on the 12th of March this year, which according to our monitoring unit observers, was putting at stake the national cohesion and reconciliation because the station had also redone the mistake on the 24th of April 2018 in a program which was broadcast by BBC Afrique, which is the French-speaking voice of BBC for Africa, where the presenter, even the interviewee, were really making very sensible statements which cannot be accepted. The way the information was taken both by the presenter and the, the, the interviewee was putting at stake the reputation of the heads of state calling on Burundians to civil disobedience and also in a way of asking Burundians to start killing each other according to the historical background of Burundi. So we put forward again to mention that this decision against the BBC by the CNC is also following an official complaint which was laid by the government of Burundi to the CNC asking the CNC has to act because you see that there is a difference. Instead of the government taking the decision, it has given the right to the CNC which is legally entitled to take such decision. So we analyze the content of the complaint by the government of Burundi. We analyze the content given by our service of monitoring. As the conclusion, we decided that the BBC should be suspended from broadcasting on the territory of Burundi for the next six months. On the other side, 
apart from broadcasting content violating media rules and regulations and likely to instigate ethnic rivalry in Burundi, The Voice of America was accused of using the online website of a media house that was shut down in the country and hiring a Burundian journalist under arrest warrant again calling Ramadan. Concerning the VOA Voice of America, the radio has violated very flagrantly the law of the media here in Burundi by continuing to broadcast its content through an application of a suspended radio through the programs online. This radio, local radio station, has been suspended since September 2017. How comes an international radio station like the VOA can accept to continue using the frequency, using the internet application belonging to a radio which has been suspended, which has been even withdrawn from the list of the broadcasters in Burundi. This is a very serious infringement of our law. Apart from that, the Voice of America has gone far in recruiting a Burundian journalist accused of different judiciary allegations and whose name has been mentioned through an international warrant. So this man is wanted by the justice of Burundi and the international justice. At the time I'm delivering this communique, the person is working with the Swahili service of the VOA. So this is a very serious impact to the relation between America and Burundi and even to the relationship between the National Council of Communication and the media as a whole. Apart from those shortcomings, the VOA has also been broadcasting some information on Burundi. As far as we know, if you go and look back to the programs broadcast on the 4th, the 5th, the 17th, and the 26th of April 2018, those news were considered by our Department of Monitoring and even by all stakeholders who are approaching the CNC that were not balanced, but also they were contrary to the rules, regulations of the profession. And some of them were entitled of undermining the relations between the Republic of Burundi and the United Nations on one side. And on the other side, those information came at least to reiterate the cycle of violence and ethnic rivalry between Burundians. So we estimated that it is time now to speak out and to make sure that the international regulations, local legal framework are respected. The decision was a huge blow to Burundian news consumers. It was taken during the critical constitutional campaign as the VOA and the BBC were among popular radio stations that could be heard almost across the country with Kirundi services besides Kiswahili, French and English programs. In the same line, Radio France International, RFI, also received a warning for disseminating biased information and likely to discredit Burundi's institutions. Also, Radio Isanganiro and Radio Seseibe FM Plus, two private local radio stations, were both issued warnings of allegations of lack of thorough verification of sources. Kaling Ramadan, the then chairman of Burundi's CNC, called, however, whoever thinks the decision was not applicable to lodge a complaint through Burundi's legal system against the decisions taken. Media in Burundi continue to be on spotlight since the breakout of the political crisis in 2015 when President Pian Konziza decided to stand for a controversial third term in office, a decision that sparked protest by the opposition, which accused him of violating the 2000 Russia Peace deal. 
The failed coup of May 13, 2015, subsequent to the protests, came to worsen the dire relations between the state and the major private radio stations that were accused of playing a key role in the coup and in the crisis, pushing the government to suspend them and shut down some later on. Since then, the government has been keeping a close eye on the activities of the media. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokera, reporting from Bujumbura. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. I'm an actress, I'm a motivational speaker, born with albinism, um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen, you see. It was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebazi, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. The festive season is a peak sales period for online shopping, but also for fraudsters who are looking to steal your card details. According to the South African Bank Risk Information Centre, credit card fraud is the leading contributor to card fraud losses in the country. So how can consumers stay safe? Here's Brendan Williamson, Payment Service Provider, Direct Pay Online, Paygate's Chief Sales Officer. We definitely do see a general increase this time of the year. Um, the fraudsters take opportunity of the fact that everybody's running around, everybody's transacting online, no one's really looking at their bank statements until the next year. So they, they use this window quite uh, to their advantage. Now, what are some of the latest trends of online shopping fraud and scams? It's general it stays very much still the same in terms of the the online stores a lot of the 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 uh, what you get what you find is what, you, what we call rogue merchants where stores are set up but the the merchant behind it is a rogue merchant either they they stealing your credit card information off the page or otherwise they're just taking your funds and not delivering the goods and then would shut down the store and then open under another facade later on some point so those those trends generally do stay um, or or remain and they they're normally consistent what would you say are some of the mistakes that consumers make that compromise their safety when shopping online? 
the most common thing is that we always we're always looking for a bargain. You know, so the, the consumer out there is running around looking for the bargain, looking for the cheapest the cheapest price. And when we get caught up in that hype, we tend to forget some of the basics that we can look at when it comes to a physical website. Um, one of the things we should always be looking for is the URL at the top of the page and whether that is an actual secure URL. Um, you, if you, in terms of identifying that, it's just to make sure that it's an HTTPS. That's what the URL starts for, stand, um, starts with, and the S standing for for secure. And what that really means is is that the data from that website to the server where that website is hosted is running through a secure channel, an encrypted channel. So when you're entering any information, whether it's your personal information or your card information, that it's running through a secure pipe. You can almost think of it like a telephone. You know, one telephone talking to the other telephone, and that line between the two is secure. So that's definitely one of the, the, the first things that one should look out for. Another element is to make sure that the, the, the certificate of that site is up to date. And then if it's a secure site from a certificate perspective, you'll normally see a little, a little emblem in terms of on the page somewhere in terms of the provider that that website is or that merchant is using. And you can click on that little emblem, that logo, and what it would do is it'll pull up the certificate of that physical site and tell you when last that site was certified. And if it's an outdated certificate, then I definitely would not proceed. I definitely would not put my information into that website. And that's the likes of the thoughts, the very signs, etc., that would certify a site in that manner. Um, those are the basics. But the real basic one of, the, of all of them is just go and do reviews on that specific website. Social media is really great for us uh, in terms of that. Go over and look at what other people are saying about that website, whether they've had any good experiences, whether they've had any negative experiences on that specific site. There's also issues with regards to the scheming of cards in, in, in shopping centers or different stores. How does that work and what's the difference between the two? So that actually happens in the physical environment. And, and the actual skimmer, it could be in front of you or they could be in a remote place. And when I say remote, it's so sophisticated today in terms of how the skimming can get done. They could plant a device, whether it's on an ATM or on a, on a point of sale, and the person actually taking your data could be sitting in the bathroom of that shopping mall or in a car in the parking lot. And then that information is transferred over a radio frequency to that individual. And when that, when that actually physically happens, they literally instantaneously are selling that card information into the wide net. Um, and there's things to look out for when it comes to, to that point of that, or that type of fraud is when a, when a card machine is handed to you, please do not ever let your card out of your sight. Always try and control the use of that card. Keep it in your hand. Be the one that takes the card machine. Be the one that inserts the card into that card machine. And if for any reason that transaction fails, make note of it. Try and look at what the, what the slip says in terms of why it's failing and always keep that as proof in terms of the transaction failing. The skimming devices used, sometimes they look just like the point-of-sale machine or they can be a point-of-sale machine or they could be a lot smaller. They literally just slip them under the sleeve of their shirts and they'll pretend to drop your credit card and as they drop your card, when they pick the card up, it happens so quickly, they'll literally just swap the card through the device or whether it's, it's, it's put in their sock and they'll swap it up their leg. But nowadays, they're after your PIN as well. So the device they'll normally use is normally a device that will capture your PIN. You'll find that they, they do online shopping on a card where an individual is sitting at home and the banks are able to, to, to find that and, and, and protect a customer on that front. How do you then deal going forward with the store where this type of scheming or this type of fraud happens? 
So in many instances, uh, you know, you are able, depending, because normally it's not only one customer where, the, where that skimming takes place. It all, it all happens, you know, from a waiter in a restaurant somewhere, you can locate it down to that specific store. And, there's, and there'll be a lot of customers that have walked in that store where, where, the, where the cards have been skimmed. So very quickly, the banks pick up that trend or pick up on that trend, and then they'll go down to that store and whatever needs to be done from an investigation perspective or an arrest perspective. On the online store, it's very different because many times, you know, that, that card information could be used by an online store that's actually not involved in the process at all. But in that instance, you know, if you look at a company like ourselves, DPO Paygate, we process a lot of transactions in the South African space. So a lot of all those online transactions are running through our switch. And behind our switch, we have a, a fraud or a specialist fraud unit that sits there and monitors this type of, the type of activity. So, you know, we, we work in very closely with the banks as well, you know, in terms of detecting the fraud on a merchant. So before possibly even where a bank has picked it up, we're detecting a pattern. We go, well, this looks a bit different. So together with the banks, we work very closely with them in terms of being able to detect this type of fraud. Brendan Williamson, Payment Service Provider, Direct Pay Online Paygate's Chief Sales Officer, talking there to Lulu Gabu. Cameroon, at the end of 2018, reactivated village militia called self-defense groups on its northern border with Nigeria after persistent suicide bombings from suspected members of the Nigerian terrorist group Boko Haram. Authorities say the bombers continue to cross over from Nigeria and they hope the armed locals can prevent further attacks and assist in rebuilding their communities. Moki Kanzika reports from Yowindi. A group of 200 young men drawn from 20 villages around the town of Amchide sing a song about initiation into the local militia. In the lyrics, they vow to defend their communities from all intruders who would disturb the peace they had enjoyed for the past five months. That peace was shaken when two suicide bombers attacked a food market in Amchide, wounding 29 people, nine of them critically. The female bombers, the only ones killed, are suspected of having crossed over from the neighboring Nigerian town of Banki. Midjiyawa Bakari is governor of this far northern region of Cameroon, which borders Nigeria. He says the bombings prompted him to reactivate the village militias known as self-defense groups. Nous allons tout droit vers le fait de fin d'année, ce qui exige donc que nous soyons davantage beaucoup plus vigilants. He says people should be extremely vigilant. Boko Haram fighters and suicide bombers may want to infiltrate. As this time of the year, people are traveling between Nigeria and Cameroon to buy goods in preparation for end-of-year feasts. 29-year-old Cameroonian businesswoman Ruga Amina says she just missed death when debris from the bombings hit her left leg. She says she now feels the pain Boko Haram victims have gone through. With Boko Haram's unpredictability, says Amina, death is very near and pain very likely.
Aujourd'hui, je suis allé en profondeur et je crois que c'est véritable et réel. Donc, je prends l'engagement de prier davantage. Suspected Boko Haram suicide bombers last attacked Amchide in July when three blew themselves up, wounding five civilians. Cameroon reopened most of its border with Nigeria in January, five years after it was closed due to Boko Haram attacks. Rigobert Gardima, leader of an Amchide militia, says the self-defense groups had been disbanded as attacks warned but they do not want further suffering inflicted on their people. C'est pas un travail facile parce que même quand on est au travail ici, nous sommes traumatisés par leur situation difficile qu'ils sont en train de He says they are ready to help stop suicide bombers and fighters from coming to their villages, but it is not an easy task. Most of them do not get paid and lack training and basic tools for communication, says Gardima. Some are also traumatized, he says, when their family members and houses are targeted by Boko Haram supporters. The militias live on donations and what support they can get from Cameroon's government. In recent years, authorities arrested some militia members suspected of being Boko Haram supporters. Rosaline Gwese, a politics and crime analyst at the University of Yaoundé, says the militias are vital if Boko Haram is to be defeated. But she says those who seek to join the militias should be thoroughly screened. They must be reliable and competent, diligent, assiduous, available and willing to work. You are supposed to know the rules and regulations, ethics and deontology. If they are not, then there's a problem somewhere. They should be taught right now what people are going to expect of them. A bulldozer of the Cameroon Military Engineering Corps digs through an abandoned portion of the road linking its northern border town of Kuseri to the Chaden capital Jamena and Bono State in northeastern Nigeria. Hundreds of curious onlookers, including businesswoman and politician Amkres Jibrin, are out to witness the relaunch of construction work on the road. She says they are very happy because instead of between 12 to 14 hours, they will be able to cover the distance in barely three hours when construction work is complete. Cameroon and Nigeria recently said they have reduced Boko Haram's ability to organize large-scale attacks with none reported for the past year. But they also warned the terrorist group was restocking its ranks by recruiting vulnerable young people. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine this hour. From myself, Brett Wilkinson, and the rest of the Africa Rise and Shine team, thank you for listening. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Africa Rise and Shine, Channel Africa, P.O. Box 91313, Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006. Or send us an SMS to plus 27 
082-332-5905. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. African Profile Namibia, the president is Haigigen Gop, and the capital of uh, Namibia is Vintuk. The land area is 825,418 square kilometers with a population of over 2 million people with a growth rate of 0.8%. The languages in Namibia are English 7%, Afrikaans 60%, German 32%, and Herero, Oshivambo, and Nama, which are 1%, which are the indigenous languages in the country. Ethnicity includes blacks, which are 87.5%, white, 6% and a mix 6.5%. The literacy rates in Namibia are 88%. The economic summary of the GDP of Namibia is $16.84 billion with a real growth rate of 4% and an inflation of 58 and unemployment of 51.2%. The main strongholds of agriculture in the country are millet, sorghum, peanuts, grapes, livestock and fish. Namibia is bordered on the north by Angola and Zambia, on the east by Botswana, and on the east and south by South Africa. It is for the most part a portion of the high plateau of southern Africa, with a general elevation of from 3,000 to 4,000 feet. The name of the country is derived from the Namib Desert, considered to be the oldest desert in the world. Before its independence in 1990, the area was known first as German Southwest Africa, then as Southwest Africa, reflecting the colonial occupation by the Germans and the South Africans, technically on behalf of the British Crown, reflecting South Africa's dominion status within the British Empire. The dry lands of Namibia were inhabited since early times by Bushmen, Damara and Namakwa, and since about the 14th century AD by immigrating Bantu who came with the Bantu expansion. It became a German imperial protectorate in 1884 and remained a German colony until the end of World War I. In 1920, the League of Nations mandated the country to South Africa, which imposed its laws and from 1948 its apartheid policy. 
1966, uprisings and demands by African leaders led the United Nations to assume direct responsibility over the territory. It recognized the Southwest Africa People's Organization, or SWAPO, as the official representative of the Namibian people in 1973. Namibia, however, remained under South African administration during this time. Following internal violence, South Africa handed over limited powers to a new multiracial administration in 1985. The previous government had enforced South Africa's apartheid laws. Installation of this government ended South Africa's direct rule, but it retained an effective veto over the new government's decisions. Finally, in 1988, South Africa agreed to a plan for independence. Swapo leader Sam Nujoma was elected president, and on March 21, 1990, Namibia achieved nationhood. Namibia obtained full independence from South Africa in 1990 with the exception of Walvis Bay and the Penguin Islands, which remained under South African control until 1994. Sam Nujoma was re-elected in 1994 and then again in 1999, after the constitution was amended to allow him to seek a third term. He announced in November 2001 that he would not seek re-election when his term expired in 2004. In November 2004, Hifiki Punye Pohamba of Swapo was elected president with 76% of the vote. He took office on March 21, 2005 and was easily re-elected in 2009, taking 75% of the vote. After 28 November 2014, Namibian President Hifiki Punye Pohamba stepped down. This was subsequent to him serving two terms from 2004 to 2014. In the elections, the candidate of Namibia's governing party, Swapo's nominee and former Prime Minister Hagi Gengop, won the country's presidential elections, taking 87% of the vote. The party also won more than 80% of the votes in parliamentary elections. Namibia has maintained a track record of consistent economic growth, moderate inflation, limited public debt, and export earnings. Namibia's economy is closely linked to South Africa's economy through trade, investment, and common monetary policies. The Namibian dollar is pegged to the South African rand, making many economic trends, including inflation, closely following those in South Africa. Agriculture is the largest form of employment, accounting for 27% of jobs, and the national government is the largest employer, employing 12% of all workers. The informal sector remains large in Namibia. The major source of income for more than 40% of households is subsistence agriculture, a social grant or other source outside of formal sector employment. You have been listening to African Profile brought to you by Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you.